Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 24 through 29. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Amen. Amen. Let's read 24 through 29. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray again. Father, let's pray your, your blessings on your word this morning. Father, help me speak clearly. Father, help us to tug on the affections of our hearts this morning that we might love what we hopefully will come to understand this morning. And Father, just, uh, just give us grace this morning. Father, you, you have covered all our sin. Now, Father, please give us the grace to hear your, the words of the shepherd as he calls our hearts. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've been working through this for the love of his name. I've been thinking through this idea of what does it mean for the love of his name. And I think, I, I, I'm convinced that Paul once again is saying and doing what he is saying and doing because he has a love for the Father's name. And I think this is evidenced even here if you just pay attention to the broader context of what Paul has written to the church in Colossae. I'm convinced that Paul would have us be motivated by the same thing. Doing the same things, motivated by the same thing that is a love for God's name. I mean, just look with me at Colossians 1, what Paul has just got done doing in the first 23 verses of Colossians. What has he done? I mean, just, just a brief scan. Just look at the beginning. Look at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you. He speaks of what God has done in their lives. Then, getting on, we'll just fly right through that. Look at verse 15. What's he do in verse 15? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. I mean, do you think Paul's just writing this kind of like, kind of like he's writing an essay or writing a, you know, writing down, transferring a recipe from a, from a website to a recipe card? I mean, what do you think Paul's doing here? I mean, Paul, I think, I mean, there's no way Paul penned these words without worshiping God as he was writing these words. There's just no way. The things that he says here, it's common in Paul to give a theology, to give doctrine as a basis for what he's doing. Very common. All throughout Paul's letters, there's, there's a theology, a doctrine, this is what we believe, and then in the latter half of the book, this is what we do. It's always what God is, who we are in light of God, and then how we live in light of God. And so what you see here in chapter 1 is Paul says this is who God is. This is what God has done. This is the character of God. This is who Christ is. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, Paul says. Not now in the sense of, I think, a time stamp. He's not saying, now is the time at which I rejoice in my sufferings. I think he means to draw attention to us, that he has just said all of these things about Christ. Now listen to me. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. All of this paves way for all of this that follows. I rejoice because of this that I just got done saying. It's a love for His name that would lead us to toil in making His Word fully known. It's a love for His name that Paul toils to make Christ fully known. It's a love for His name that would cause Paul, should cause us, will cause us to rejoice even in our suffering. So with that said, kind of as a backdrop walking into this, just, we're going to kind of bounce around in this passage a little bit. We're not going to, I mean, we're going to hit pretty much everything in these few verses, but, but we're going to kind of jump around. So I'm going to try and help you follow me here. The first verses we want to look at is 24b through 26 and verse 28. Look at the end of 24. He says, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. For what? To make the Word of God fully known. I think this is Paul's purpose in this passage. This is what Paul is doing. This is his goal. It is to make the Word of God fully known. And then in verse 28, we get something very similar. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present to everyone mature in Christ. So we have at the beginning in verse 25, technically the end of 25, to make the Word of God fully known. And then at the beginning of 28, we see Him we proclaim, warning and teaching with all wisdom to present everyone mature in Christ. What would be the effect of making the Word of God fully known? The result of that would be the presenting of everyone mature in Christ. So this is Paul's goal in this passage. And I want to commend to you, church, that this 
should, can be, and must be our goal that we proclaim Christ and we make Him fully known. That is our goal. Now certainly, there are other things, joy in doing this, holiness in doing this, all these things, but our goal, our desire is that we would proclaim Christ and make Him fully known. And I just have to ask us, church, is that our desire? Is that your desire? Is it your desire with your coworker? Is it your desire with your spouse? Do you proclaim Christ to your spouse so that he would be fully known by your spouse and that she might be presented mature at the coming of Christ? Church, are we proclaiming Christ to each other? That he might be fully known? You know, church, as a body, as, as all working parts of the same body, we will answer to God someday, each one of us, for how we've proclaimed the word of Christ to each other. Paul here sees this as a serious thing. This is his goal, his desire, to proclaim Christ and make Him fully known. To make the Word of God fully known. Who is the Word? The Word of God is Jesus. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is written, not Himself. Did you know what I'm saying? The Word is God. The Word was with God, right? We see the kind of the interplay there, uh, interchange of, of words and such, but as we make this known, we will, if we do it rightly, we'll be making Christ known. As we make Christ known, we are making this known. There's, there's a, a, a combination there, if you will. Our ministry is to present Christ, indeed all of Christ, so that He might be fully known. I want you to think about that. Alright, so here's what I'm going to push in on us, Okay? When we think of evangelism, we think of, oh no, i got to share with my neighbor, with my coworker, that if they don't repent and place faith in Jesus, that they're going to die and go to hell. Right? Fair enough. That is part of it. That would be very foundational to that. What does Jesus command us to do in Matthew 28, and what is Paul exemplifying for us here in Colossians 1? Making him fully known. How about that? How about, why well, just don't always know what to say when it comes to evangelizing and sharing the gospel? If you're worried about that, you got bigger problems, okay? Because our calling is not just to share the truths of the gospel is to share the more broad gospel that is everything that Christ commanded. And on top of that, all right, I don't want to I don't want to heap pressure on us, but I'll, I want us to see the gravity of the situation. Jesus says, notice he doesn't just say teach them all of my commands. He says teach them how to obey all or teach them to obey all that I have commanded. What does that mean? Does that mean we can just Hey, dude, you're supposed to do this. This is what Jesus says. Well, that's part of it, but it doesn't stop there. It can't 
stop there. Our calling, our responsibility is to make Christ fully known. Now here's the thing, I, just as a little tidbit of encouragement. <clears throat> the more you're able to make Christ fully known, I think, the easier it is to make Him initially known. Right? The easier it comes to make Him fully known, the more easier it is to make Him initially known. Now, I, I don't want to take away from the work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration and opening their eyes. That's not what I'm doing. But I'm saying to explain Christ initially because much easier as you can explain Him more fully. Right? Right. Paul understood that his calling, our calling, is to bring about obedience of the faith. Romans 1, right? To teach them all how to obey, or teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Matthew 28. Paul understood that to proclaim Christ meant to know the Word, live the Word, and teach the Word. When we look at verse 27, Paul embodied the Word, right? Christ in you. Paul knew the Word and taught it. Verse 25. Look at verse 25 with me. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. He was a minister of this Word. Now, I just don't want to overlook this. I do think Paul has a very unique expression of this calling that no one else is called to. I mean, there's an, an apostleship here that is unique to Paul that we are not called to. But we are all transformed from promoting our perceived good to promoting the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that's where we need to camp out at is that we are all called in the broader context to be ministers of the same gospel that Paul is exemplifying for us. Let me say this. The good news that drives you is the good news that you preach. Right? Paul. See, here's what, I just want you to see this in the text. The good news that was driving Paul, at least at this very moment in verse 24, has to be verses 15 through 23. That's the good news that Paul has that's now driving him in verse 24. You don't pin 15 through 23 and go, okay, well now I think I'll talk about what I do for Jesus. No. I write these things and this is what comes from it. This was driving Paul. Good news that drives you is the good news that you preach. So, I just want us to make some observations. A few things that we learn here from this section where it says, where we think about proclaiming Christ and making Him fully known. What are some encouragements that we see from this passage that would help us proclaim Christ and make Him fully known? First of all, is that we trust God's sovereignty in the receiving of this good news. Trust God's sovereignty in the receiving of this good news. Meaning the receiving of those who would hear that news. Not necessarily in our receiving of it, but in the recipients to whom we will proclaim Christ. We trust God's sovereignty in that. So first of all, underneath trusting God's sovereignty, see God's perfect timing. See God's perfect timing. Look at verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. 
What do we see there? God had a plan. God had a time. God could have revealed this a thousand years earlier, and we could still be anticipating the revelation of this today. Okay? We trust God's timing. Now, this mystery hidden for the ages, I don't want to overlook this either. This mystery, God in the flesh, Israel's unbelief, the unity of Jew and Gentile. I mean, these are all parts of this mystery, I think, that is now was hidden for ages and now revealed. Oh, I think the Old Testament spoke of it, but is now revealed to God's saints, to his church. Understand that God chose to reveal himself in a certain ways, in certain ways, at certain times. I mean, God is not frivolous in doing these things, right? And we, I hope we understand this. We, under, we understand what this means for the boss at work that I'm getting to have a conversation with. God has ordained providentially for that to happen. It is not by chance. God is in control of these things. I, for me, that's exciting. When I, when I see that God has opened a door, even when God doesn't open a door, like, I can go, thank you, God. You're in control of the situation. I just want to be faithful. Like, I was at Runaround Fun Town the other day, uh, uh, on Friday, and saw, you know, when you go to a kid's joint like that, and uh, you see, like, one other dude in the place, the rest are all women, right? You kind of gravitate towards the dude, at least I do, uh, and he had a Colt shirt on. So I walked up to him, how about those Colts, man? It's a pretty rough game, eh? And so we talked, and we talked, and, and sometimes I, uh, it, well, let's put it this way, if church, the body of Christ is, like, you're a part of that, and it is, sen- like, very centrally located in your heart, then it's going to come up in conversation. Uh, so, you know, sometimes I will throw out, hey, my buddy from church is going to be meeting me here, and you, you'd be surprised, uh, yeah, Greg was going to meet us there, and, and the girls were going to play with the boys, and so it was fun. Uh, so anyways, I, I wasn't lying to the dude. Uh, so the ch- the ch- a buddy from my church is coming, and we're going to hang out. And, and, and sometimes like sometimes people will bite at that. Oh, well, where do you go to church? Dude, whoa, open door, right? Sometimes they don't. Sometimes I'm more pointed. Sometimes I mean, it depends on the leading of the Holy Spirit. But, but I trusted God in that moment that was being faithful, and that he didn't open the door. And okay, all right, God, well, maybe next time. But trusting God in that, trusting His timing in that. Now, as you proclaim the good news, you must trust God's timing. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe God has suffering planned for you that that other person's going to watch. Maybe that's what it's going to take to soften that person's heart. That's just an example. I mean, God can use a thousand things to do that. Maybe it's just not time yet. Now, I would say we err on the wrong side of time and not doing it. I think most of us probably err there. So, lest us get too comfortable in waiting. I don't want that to happen. Uh, But we can trust God. And I think our trusting should encourage us to go. All right, so see God's perfect timing. See God's choosing. See God's choosing. I tell you, if you don't like election, you don't like the Bible, I mean, it's just all over the place. 
Colossians 1.27, he says, to them God chose. To them God chose. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Now church, I want us to stop for just a second. We we just can't walk past these words. I, I could not walk past these words without stopping and worshiping for just a moment. Church, he chose to make his mystery known among the Gentiles. Do you understand what that means for you and I? Right? <laughs> you and I have the opportunity to be eternally changed simply because God chose to include us. I don't think either that this was just simply a New Testament, oh goodness, the Jews aren't coming to my son, so I'm going to have to choose a different people. I think this was God's plan all along. From the beginning. I think this is wrapped up in Israel, largely in Israel being a light to the nations. That he, God's glory, God's character would be displayed to the nations. Anyways, Israel is to be God's light. This helps us realize that the mysteries of the gospel, think about God's choosing here. This is a, I think this is key. It helps us realize that the mysteries of the gospel are not discovered by the genius of man, but are revealed by the will and act of God. Okay? Think in our highly educated culture. We tend to think, well, if I just educate them enough about Jesus that they'll, they will turn, if I just persuade them, if I just work hard at persuading them. Now, I do think we need to be persuasive, we need to be wise and blameless and all those things. But they are revealed by the will and act of God. God's purpose, though, hear me, is that His people would know His truth. Have you ever just thought about that? Have you ever thought about that? That it's God's purpose that you would know Him. It's God's purpose, plan, He willed that, acted upon it, that you would know Him. All right. So we trust God's sovereignty as we go and proclaim. But we also, we proclaim how great. What do we proclaim? We proclaim how great are the riches of His glory. So trusting in sovereignty. Now we proclaim how great are the riches of His glory now revealed as Christ indwells His people. We proclaim how great are the riches of His glory now revealed as Christ indwells His people. Or one of the ways it's revealed. You think about this with me, right? The Old Testament, just very briefly, the Israelites were set apart by the accompaniment of God's presence, right? That was the thing that set them apart, that God, the creator of the world, dwelt among his people. This is how they were to be known around the world, as the people with whom God dwelt. 
God dwelt with his nation, with his nation, as these people by faith followed the commands of God. I mean, God certainly did this many times in spite of their, uh, or in, even with their rebellion and such, but God dwelt with his people. The problem, though, was that these people were exercising faith from an unchanged heart, right? There was still this non new heart that's given to us in the new covenant. But still, those of his people who are exercising faith. The problem was that God could only dwell amongst them, not in them, because of their wicked hearts. It's a big distinction. And all men have wicked hearts, and God cannot dwell in that. But now, but now, it is a mystery, right? That Christ could, would, indwell the hearts of a people. God would dwell the hearts of His people, that His people would be known not because of some building in which God met with His people, that God's people would not be known by that such thing, but would be known because as they go, God dwells in them. And as they gather, they are known because God dwells in them. Now what this means, that this means is that these hearts must desire the light, have faith in Christ, and be spotless for the residence of a holy God. It's a big deal. The fact that He now indwells His people is hope for future glory. Alright. So sovereignty of God. We proclaim how great the riches of His glory. Next, we proclaim warning and teaching with all wisdom, Paul says. Verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may now present everyone mature in Christ. This is pretty self-explanatory. I'm not going to spend much time here, but Warning, I mean, certainly of the imminent danger, the danger of hell, the danger of destruction now. Teaching everyone with wisdom. I like how Paul adds that in, right? Because we just, like, we're trying to muster up the knowledge, like learn the knowledge, and then muster up the courage to go do it. And then now Paul says you've got to do it with wisdom too. I've seen a lot of people try to share the news of Jesus Christ and teaching each other with very little wisdom. He says to do it with all wisdom. Him we proclaim. And then the last thing we proclaim, we proclaim so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We present so that we may, may present everyone mature in Christ. In Christ. You see that at the end of verse 28. And we present everyone mature in Christ. Again, I just want us to see these connections. This is very reminiscent of Romans 1. The obedience of the faith among the nations, right? Very reminiscent of Matthew 28. Go make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. 
Now, I, I want to propose here that when Paul talks about in this passage, if you look back, uh, verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Okay? The church. What does Paul mean there by the church? I don't think Paul means they're just Colossae. I don't think Paul means they're just the Colossians. I think what Paul means to say is that his concern here, his concern is not just this local body, his concern is not just these people who are following Jesus, but I think Paul's concern here is the church, all-inclusive Colossians, Ephesians, those in Thessalonica, you and I here today, and those whom would be redeemed that Paul had not seen yet. Paul says then at the end, we proclaim warning everyone, teaching everyone, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I think Paul has in mind here, capital C, church. Even the church that he has yet to behold with his own human eyes. I think Paul sees beyond just those in Colossians when he's talking about this concern. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Man, what a task. What a task. Let me just stop there. What do you think? Let's press in a little bit more. This is our task. Our task, we get to proclaim Christ and make Him fully known. The next thing I want us to see is that we should suffer and toil for the sake of making Him fully known. All right, let's see if we can flush out more of uh, comfy Christianity out of our lives, okay? Let's see if we can do that here with Paul's words. Two parts to this, two kind of grand parts to this. First is this, I toil for the sake of his name. I want us to see this first. Paul talking about him toiling for the sake of his name. Look at 21. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now the last part, after the comma, is super important. But I think we're very quick to get to the second part of that, like after the comma, that we forget what Paul says before the comma. For this I toil. What is it? What is the this? This I toil. What has he just said? We proclaim him, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. This making his name fully known. For this I toil. The idea of toil is like a, a weariness to this work, a difficulty to this work. But we live in America, right? It's all about ease and making things easier and making things more comfortable for us. Paul says, I toil. For this, I toil. 
it made me think of 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Or the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Here is Paul toiling, working, pushing himself, stretching himself, disciplining himself. I mean, I think about the weariness when swimming upstream, or when you think about swimming in the ocean, right? Try and swim against the waves. You know? Like, and then you kind of go back down, right? And then, oh, it's, it's difficult. It's hard. Think about the difficulty when working in the sun. I mean, this is, this is difficult work. But what was Paul working hard for in this passage, in this 1 Corinthian passage? Look at the verses right before it. I mean, you can go look later. We're not going to right now. But the idea there is that he would win some. He says, for, this is the pastor. He says, for the Jew, I became like the Jew. For the, those under the law, I became like those under the law, even though I was not under the law, so on and so forth. But he says that, so that I might win some. Similar in this passage, Paul is striving, Paul is disciplining, Paul is toiling, Paul is working, Paul is planning, Paul is doing, Paul is pushing so that those far from God would be found in Christ, and that they would know Him with maturity at the coming of Christ. Well, Paul's working hard, not just that they would know who Jesus is, but that they would know fully who Jesus is. Now, now we can get to after the comma, okay? Notice whose power. So for all, the, all of us self-empowered, doing by our own righteousness, working by our own strength, notice whose power. I mean, if there was anyone who had enough power in himself to do the job, it was probably Paul, outside of Jesus. It was probably Paul. But Paul says, who is it that's working? He's struggling. For this I toil, struggling, struggling, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I don't think Paul means to say that he's struggling, like he's fighting with the energy. I think he's toiling and struggling, and he's doing all this, though, with the energy that he powerfully works within me. Let me ask you this. you ever feel like you don't have the power to accomplish the task? Thanks, Tom. you ever feel like you don't have the power to accomplish the task that you want to do or that you're in? you ever feel like that? I want to encourage you, two things. It's likely one of these reasons that you feel like you don't have the power. One, it could be because you're trying to accomplish your task and not the king's task. This is where I get worn out. This is where I get burnt out. It's when I'm trying to do something that the king doesn't want me to do, so he's not giving me the power to do it. So what happens? At the same time, or it could be that you're trying to accomplish his task, but in your own strength. There might be other reasons. I don't want to say that's just the only two, but just a couple observations. Maybe you're trying to do something God doesn't want you to do. Or maybe you are trying to do it, but you're trying to do it with your own strength. 
And I think oftentimes we want to do things with our own strength because we want to feel accomplished when we get done. I struggle there all the time. I'm just going to buck up and do this because it will make me feel real good when I get it done. Instead of repenting and saying, God, no, it's not, it's not my strength, it's yours. Please powerfully work that within me. Or God, help me to stop building my kingdom because that's the only other option. You're either building the king's kingdom or your kingdom. Help me to stop building my kingdom and be about your tasks. As Noah talked about in the missions conference, help me to stop earning perishable money on this side of eternity. All right. So we get power to accomplish this task of taking the gospel to the nations and presenting everyone mature in Christ. We serve to see the word of God fully known. Here's what's awesome. He gives us both the content and the power to complete the task. We proclaim him to be fully known. The proclaiming we get power for. The fully known is being revealed to us. See that? All right. Now, here's the deal, church. We will, not, we will not toil to see the word of God fully known among the nations until we toil to see the word of God fully known in our own hearts. Okay? We won't. There's no use in talking about it. Until we, I don't, I don't want to provoke selfishness here. That's not, not the means or not my desire. But if we're not desireful to know him fully, then it's going to reflect in this. But I think as we desire to know Him fully and as we taste that, then we won't be able to help but share it. So, questions. Do, we say, do you toil for the sake of His name? Do you toil for the sake of knowing Him? Now, Christian, what, what do you find yourself toiling for? Think about this over this past week. It's a good reflection question for you to think about. What are you toiling for? Like what are you toiling doing and what is its purpose? My guess is that the very thing you toil for is probably insulation from suffering so as to secure the temporary and fleeting joy in whatever your wicked heart has deemed worthy of worship this day. Let me say that again. <clears throat> Oftentimes, if we're not toiling for His purpose, then we're toiling likely to insulate ourselves from any kind of suffering so that we can secure the temporary and fleeting joy in whatever it is that we have deemed worthy of worship for us that day. That's usually what we're toiling for. Either toil for His purpose or we toil for the purpose of securing our fleeting and temporary joy in whatever we've deemed worshipful that day. So maybe you toil at your job to keep the money rolling in so that your family can live comfortably. Now, there's nothing wrong with living comfortably. I don't want to go down that road, but is that what brings you joy? Maybe you toil at your job to, to keep the affirmation of your coworkers going. Now, now certainly, we, we want the people of the world to think highly of God's people as hard workers. But 
Are you toiling for their affirmation or toiling for the Father's affirmation? Now here's the deal. When we toil, when we find joy somewhere else, we toil for something else, we become a slave to it. We become a slave to its demands. Paul here is a slave, but he's a slave to the toiling for the king as where you and I become slaves and toiling in toiling to something else. But instead, when we find joy in the Father, we are set free from toiling and laboring in the endless pursuit of fleeting joy. And we are set free to toil for Him and endless joy. And oh, I wish we would see that. I wish I, my heart would see that itself. This makes toiling so much more palatable because our delight is in God and not in our circumstances. Toiling here, uh, for some of us, uh, oh goodness. But it's much more palatable when our delight is in God and not in the circumstances. All right, let's move to the second thought here. And we'll run this through to the end. <clears throat> and that is, let me ask this question. What do we know of suffering in this world for the sake of making His name known? As we think about suffering here for just the next few moments, I just, I just want to begin with the tone of we must be careful when we think about suffering that we do not forget the saints that have gone before us and the saints that are in the world suffering for the name of Jesus Christ who are facing death even this very moment. Okay? And I just, let's just take a few seconds. I want to pray for our brothers and sisters that are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you now. We know you're in control. We know that you're being honored and glorified as your saints around this world are suffering. And Father, I pray that you just that you would give them strength to endure and strength to persevere as they find their rest not in the flesh, but they find their rest in their hope of glory. They find their rest as they abide in Christ and He abides in them. Father, I pray if it's Your will that You would deliver them. Father, we know it's Your will that You would abide in them and they would abide in You. We know that to be the case. So Father, we just pray that Your will would be done in that, that You would open their hearts, guide their hearts, shepherd their hearts, care for their hearts. And that, Father, you would place them on our mind more often so that we might pray for them. And, Father, it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. I want us to understand here that all suffering, whether at the hands of an enemy or at the hands of bad health, all serve to expand the rule and reign of our King. Okay? Now, just kind of as a thought to kind of Bring us into this. I'm not seeing all of that right here in this passage. Obviously, I'm appealing more broadly. It all serves His glory. It all serves 
the aim in displaying His glory. It all serves in bringing about the worship of others for His glory. At the very least, at the very least, suffering reminds us of our own need for the King that we proclaim. As we are emptied of ourselves, we are filled with Him. As joy in anything else is stripped away from us, we are filled with joy in the Father. It's the difference between a lost world and a saved world, right? Is that as temporary fleeting joy is stripped from our hands, those who are redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is replaced with joy in the Father. The world, when joy is stripped from their hands, there is nothing left to replace it other than fleeting joy in something else. This joy that we're talking about today, that Paul's talking about, is a death-defying joy. This is a joy that would make your willingness look stupid. Okay? That would make your efforts look ridiculous. You know my boys' like favorite Old Testament stories are right now? I, I'm kind of getting tired of reading them, but but uh, it'll at least serve this purpose this morning, is uh, Meshach, Radshach, and Abednego, right? <laughs> I know, yeah, I know. So my boys say it. Then, uh, now we haven't been reading David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, you know? So we've got the fiery furnace and we've got the lion's den. Like, just worship Nebuchadnezzar or worship his idol, right? Just pretend. Just pretend. Okay, yeah, yep, 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 yep. What do they do? Their faithfulness to God, their willingness to go, their toiling, their suffering looked stupid for the rest of the world looking on. But they have faith in the Father, joy in the Father, I'm sure. It's a death-defying joy, joy that says, I will only worship God even if they throw me in the fiery furnace. You know, I have to say this at this moment. You know, Christianity in our culture has been so comfortable. You know, and we can be thankful to God for that, right? And I don't want to pray, I don't, pray, I don't ever pray this, that God would bring suffering on His people in this land, but I, but I, I just have to be honest, church, if, if that meant that God's Word would go forth in greater fervor than it is currently, then okay. I mean, I, I, again, I'm not asking God, please don't hear me say that, I'm not asking God for that, but just study church history. Just study church history. The gospel goes forth in times of non-suffering as well, but certainly during times of suffering. So whether that is suffering at the hands of an enemy or suffering at the hands of bad health, it all serves a purpose. So with that, let's look and see what Paul says in verse 24. He says, Now I, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. So kind of two broad thoughts here. 
First of all, he says, I rejoice in my suffering for the sake of his name. I'm sorry, that, that's kind of the main thought, and then I have two smaller thoughts underneath that. I rejoice in my sufferings for the sake of his name. Paul rejoiced, I think, for two reasons, at least according to this passage. One, Paul rejoiced because his suffering served to bring about rightful worship of the king. His suffering served to make him fully known. His suffering served the going forth of the gospel for the sake of the church. I just want to read to you real quick a little bit about Paul's sufferings. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23b through 28. He says, With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from the false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. So when Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings, that's what he's saying. I'm rejoicing in that. In all this, I rejoice, Paul says. Why does Paul rejoice? I think because Paul understood his suffering served a purpose. It served this purpose. That the Creator God, receiving through worship, that the Creator God would receive the worship through the changed vessels that He created for worship. That those whom God chosen to redeem that they would worship him that they would know him what brings about worship right theology results in doxology so paul is making him fully known so that they would worship him as if he is fully known theology doctrine belief doxology worship the response thereof Paul rejoiced because his fellow brothers and sisters were being transformed by the gospel that he was proclaiming to them. Now, here's a question. Do you think Paul was imprisoned for just speaking the truths necessary for initial salvation? Was that all Paul was doing? He just said, all right, here's your what four spiritual laws and that the old track. You know, or here's your Romans road or here's your faith outline. Right? And then they threw him in prison. No, Paul was suffering because of the gospel he preached for initial salvation and the continued application and understanding of that gospel for Christian living, for working out one's salvation. Alright, so Paul rejoiced because his suffering served to bring about rightful worship of the king. Or another way you could say that is Paul rejoiced because his suffering served to proclaim and make the word of God fully known 
The second thing is Paul rejoiced because his suffering served to bring about the consummation. Right? To bring about the return of Christ. Now, I think, I think I understand this next verse. It's a highly, like, hard, like, a, it's a difficult verse to understand. But I think, I think this makes sense. I, I pray that it does. I pray that it's encouraging to us. But filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, you can go back. Rusty preached on this passage, like, two and a half years ago, okay? So you can go back. I went back to make sure that, you know, uh, we were on the same page or that we didn't, one of us isn't saying something crazy wrong, you know. And, uh, and I, did, I studied and then went back, and, and it was awesome. We were both on the same page here. It's was, it was glorious. Um, all right, so Paul says, verse 24, I want you to see this, because I think this is so encouraging. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now I think we struggle with this passage because when we get here, we think of the affliction necessary for redemption. We think Christ didn't suffer enough to pay the price for our sins, and so Paul now is having to make that up. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here in this passage. Besides, the redeeming work of Christ was not the primarily, or even at all, in this, at least that I think I haven't thought about this fully yet, but it's certainly not primarily the affliction from other people that brought about the redemption of God's people through Jesus Christ. It's the affliction by the wrath poured out on Jesus from God. So the affliction here is not tied to Christ's redeeming work. But I want you to think about it this way. This, is, this was helpful to me in thinking through this. I want you to think about there is a kind of a a quota, like a quota is, it's like a, a standard to be met or an amount that is set. You often think of like sales quotas, like for salesmen they have to sell a certain amount. I even heard like, do police officers have like a quota of tickets that they got to get rid of? Yeah. They don't have my name written on them. That's where the issue is. They have a quota, it's got a name. Already pre-filled. Anyways, a quota. So think of it this way. There's a quota of suffering for the sake of his name. Okay? There's a quota of suffering. Now, this I think can be true of everything. There is a a certain amount of, of tears to be wept before the return of Christ. There's a certain amount of deaths to be had to return to Christ. A certain amount of births to be had before the return of Christ. These are all preset, determined, and providentially will happen by God. So I don't think this is a foreign concept to Scripture. But I think what Paul is wanting to bring out here is that there is a certain amount of suffering that will be had by God's people for the sake of His name, and when all of that is done, when all of God's people have suffered and fulfilled that quota and it is done, then comes our Savior. Then comes 
what, I mean, part, what is he doing? Some of that's preparing us. Some of that's being used to bring about other sheep to the fold. And some of that's just using to display his glory on this side of eternity. And so what Paul is saying is, I think if Paul could find joy in his sufferings, because with each suffering, Paul knew that the quota of affliction for Christ's sake was one step closer to the return of Christ. With every crack of the whip, with every slam of the door cell, with every pitch of the rock, Paul thought to himself, one step closer to the coming of my king. Not in the sense that I'm earning my righteousness, I'm, I'm one step holier before the king, not one step, I'm, I, I'm one step closer to being right with God, but I'm one step closer, we are one step closer to the coming of the king. Once the afflictions of Christ have been finished, or the afflictions for Christ's sake have been finished, he will return. Once the lacking in affliction is no more, the afflicted will come once more. The afflicted one will come once more. I think Paul found joy in suffering because of his hope and glory, ultimately, is what's happening here. I think Paul is looking forward, going, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body that is the church. I rejoice in this because I know that when this lacking is no more, my Savior will come. I have hope in glory. Now I don't think, now hear me, I don't think suffering equals righteousness, but misplaced joy always avoids suffering. I think Paul found joy in suffering because of his hope of glory. And joy anywhere else would have led him to avoid the suffering. And I would encourage you, church, do not let suffering guide your steps. Let joy in Christ guide your steps. Fear not the suffering, right? It's in the gospel and say, you know, fear the one who can, don't fear who can take your body, but fear the one who can destroy the soul and body in hell. Fear not suffering. Fear losing your joy in Christ. I think we fear way too much physical, even mental anxiety and emotional distress. We should fear more losing our joy in Christ or having misplaced joy that's temporary and fleeting. So church, as we think about suffering, just think about that. Well, I think if, if, if I'm understanding this passage right, which I hope I am, one step closer. One step closer, one step closer, one step closer. All right. So, can I zero in with here with me? We'll wrap, wrap this up. God has been gracious, I think, to give us these past few weeks to consider the idea of the spread of the gospel for the sake of his name. I think even here in this passage, Paul is finding this all joy, again, because of the love of the name of the Father. Again, how do we know this? I think because what is Paul just left 
verses 15 through 23, I think set the stage. Paul's in love with the name of Christ. He's in love with the name of the Father. And he wants that name to be known, so I rejoice in what I'm doing for the sake of the gospel. I think Paul could count it all joy because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He would say the same to us. You can count your sufferings as joy because in it you will find increase in the knowing of this Christ. And in it, others will find the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Our suffering serves to make His name great. You know, one of my prayers just to stop at this moment is to say that if God brings about suffering, even on someone in our body, I pray that we are there to serve them and care for them. But we suffer. We don't suffer without a purpose. We suffer knowing that there is a purpose, and we suffer knowing that the end is one step closer. And something else, as I reflected over these past few weeks, is that you know what kills joy? Pride does. Pride kills joy. I pray that we've been exploring this over this past week since Noah was here, what pride is hindering you from making much of his name. Pride says make, make much of my name, but the gospel-guided humility that Noah spoke of last week makes much of his name. I mean, just look at, look at our Savior. He sought to make much of his Father's name. Jesus knew that ultimately, and that the other thing that we learned this over these past few weeks is that Jesus knew that ultimately it was the work of the Father in making much of his own name. That God had employed the Son as the agent of, to bring redemption, grace, and mercy through the laying down of his own life on the cross. You know, as I was thinking about this, Jesus made much of God's name as He laid down even His own name, first at the door of heaven and even further at the foot of the cross. Jesus trusted that even in His suffering, the Father was at work. Not my will, but yours, right? Jesus says in the garden, what, he, what Jesus was affirming there is, God, you're at work. You have a purpose for what I'm about to endure, and I trust you. Paul trusted that even in his suffering, the Father was at work. And thinking about the Father at work, we have to understand that God has to draw men to himself. But God employs us to preach it, to take it. How should they know if someone does not go? That's, that's not saying that God is helplessly dependent on us, but God has graciously employed us to do His work. Here's where it comes down. I think if our hearts worship the King, we'll proclaim His majesty. If we trust that the Father is at work in preparing His sheep, then we'll gather the sheep with the words of the shepherd. The gospel. If our hearts are humble, we will make much of His name and not ours. And we will toil to present everyone mature in Christ. 
Lastly, if our joy is found in Christ and not in circumstances, then suffering, you know what suffering will serve to do? If your joy is in Christ and not in circumstances, then suffering, my friends, my brothers and sisters, will serve to reveal a joy that's unchanging and a joy that's in the Father. A joy that cannot be taken away. I want to read to you this excerpt about John Bunyan from his jail cell. You should go read Pilgrim's Progress. It's a good book. John says, it's about John Bunyan. It says this, departed from my wife, or John Bunyan says this, departed from my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am fond of these great mercies, talking about his family and children, but also because I have brought to mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family is likely to be meeting with, especially my poor blind child who laid nearer to my heart than all I have. So Bunyan here is talking about suffering for the gospel and the suffering then that has brought, been brought upon his family for the sake of the gospel, okay? He says, Oh, the thought of the hardship. I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. But yet, yet I must venture all with God. Oh, I've seen in this condition I am like a man pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet thought I, I must do it. I must do it. And it just left me with this question. To what length are we willing to go for the love of His name? Church, what length are we willing to lead our families to go for the love of His name? For the sake of His name. For the sake of joy in the Father. Like, at what point do you say to the Father, no, that would be too much for me. That would be too much for my family. No. That's off limits, God. That's off limits. Paul here, though, says, look, this is what's at stake, church. Paul says, I, I rejoice in my suffering. You know why? It wasn't because suffering was just awesome. It's because I think when Paul was stripped of the temporary fleeting joy of his life, that he was then able to embrace joy in the Father. When the, the insulation of his comfort was removed, then he was able to be insulated by the joy of the Father. And church, that's what we stand, stand to grasp a hold of, to gain. Just we, we come up in this culture, this church culture, where we're, we're so just got our hands so tightly wrapped around comfort, comfort, comfort. And we take that and spiritualize and go, oh, well, you know, I got to protect my family. I got to, you know, 
Yeah, and certainly we do. We are protectors. We're providers, particularly as men. We do those kind of things. That's, that's, that's godly. But what, what if God's calling you to something else? You know, I have to admit, church, as we come to the end of this, the first two or three years of our church, I, I, I don't think I prayed one time that God would send missionaries out from us. It was more like, I want them all here. And that was strong. My heart was sinful in that. I'm sorry. Um, but I've seen God change my heart over the past year. I've, I would say one of my greatest desires is that we would send missionaries out. Even international missionaries. That we would send people out. That uh, we couldn't keep them in the door long enough. You know? That that would happen. And I don't know what that looks like for us, but that's my prayer. And I hope you'll join me in praying for that, for the sake of his name, okay? Let's uh, pray and we'll worship. Father, thank you for, just for your infinite, marvelous grace. Thank you for the grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Father, I pray that we would be a people that are so obsessed with your name that it drives us every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, and every year the rest of our lives. Father, I also pray that you would give us desire to know you more fully and birth from that the desire to make others, help others know you more fully. Father, uh, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Father, I pray as we worship, as we reflect in these next few moments, Father, I pray that we would ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to our hearts what is off limits so that we might hand that over to you in repentance, Father. Father, I love you and thank you for your grace this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You guys stand with me and worship.